Welcome to today's Lunch Hour Lecture. It gives me great pleasure to, to introduce uh, our speaker today, Professor Sandro Olivo. Uh, Sandro's been at UCL now for about 15 years. Uh, he joined our, our research staff in the Department of Medical Physics and Biomedical Engineering in January 2005. Prior to that, he did both his first degree in physics and his PhD in physics at the University of Trieste in Italy. And I think it was during his PhD that he first became involved in phase contrast imaging, which is the subject of his research here and what he's going to talk about uh, today. Uh, Sandro uh, has been a brilliant member of the department. He, he, he quickly um, obtained a, a fellowship, which enabled him to become a permanent member of staff, and he became a professor at the team. And uh, he's gone from strength to strength. His, his, his group has grown very rapidly. Good number of those people are here today. It's good to see. And uh, uh, this year, in fact, uh, just a, a month ago, he was awarded a very prestigious Royal Academy of Engineering Chair in Emerging Technologies, a very prestigious award. And uh, there's only a few are, are awarded uh, nationally each year. So well done, Sandro. So today he's, he's going to be telling us about his exciting work in phase contrast imaging. So I introduce you now, Professor Oliver. Sandro. So, <laughs> take an image like that. No, this is not working. So technology is against us. And turn it into an image like that. How can we do that? And before I even start, why should we bother? Now, people might tell you that x-rays are old stuff and maybe not so very important anymore. If they tell you that, tell them they're wrong, yeah? X-rays are extremely important, and this is something that I show my students every year. So it's a bit old, the year from March 15 to March 16, but I'm, I'm, I'm updating it every year, and it doesn't really change. So in, in violet or blue or whatever that color is, you have X-ray procedures done by the NHS, and CT is actually separated, it's the green down here. So you need to sum the green to the violet procedures, and you notice that there are at least three times as many as ultrasound and MRI, possibly M ultrasound MRI and MRI combined. Yeah? So there's still the vast majority of examinations going on in the NHS and uh, health agencies worldwide. But also, as well as medicine, X-rays are widely used in security scans, as you know every time you go to the airport and you pass your bag through a scanner. Cultural heritage is based on x-rays, as Adam in the audience here knows very well. Material science, biology, and lots of other applications in industry and beyond. So x-rays are important. So if you do transform x-rays, the impact applies to a very large number of fields. So this is conventional radiology, and it's something that you probably all know or are to some extent familiar with. And the idea is you've got something inside something else that you want to see be that uh, a tumor in tissue or an inclusion in a material that affects the performance of that material. So what happens is that if you're lucky and this guy here stops more x-rays than the surrounding background or fewer x-rays than the surrounding background, then you got some sort of signal. However, if the attenuation of what you want to see and the background are very similar, or if the detail that you want to see becomes very thin, then that thing will disappear and you won't be able to see it in your image anymore. 
which is when you might want to use something different to try to detect it, which is this phase contrast imaging business, which I'll tell you about. So like any other part of the electromagnetic spectrum, visible light, radio waves, you name it, X-rays are waves. Waves do a number of different things when they travel through matter, and the part that interests us is that they change speed when they travel through different materials. So if you imagine a wave coming into your object as before, what happens is that they will go at a different speed in here than outside, and as a consequence, the wavefront is distorted. Imagine you're sitting on a beach, and there's a big spot of oil in front of you in the sea. The wave comes in, enters the spot of oil, travels at a different speed. When it comes out the other side, the wavefront will be distorted. And you can use that distortion to create image contrast. Traditional, you're looking at the, at the height of the crests of the waves, and you're trying to see whether they've diminished or increased, paradoxically, normally diminished, which you can do, but the difference might be very, very small. And you might be better off if you use the distortion in the wavefront instead. You can do that in two ways, interference or refraction, and I'll, I'll slowly go through both opportunities. Now, interference is a complex ter uh, technical term. I'm sure you've heard it before. For example, in relation to the double slit experiment, which is one of these things that, for example, people use when they need to talk about quantum mechanics and explain why particles can behave like waves. It's typically associated to the two slit experiment, and basically, if you got light coming out of two holes, then, and you have a screen at some distance, then the crests will overlap with the troughs and they'll cancel out, or crests can sum up and give you a bigger peak, and you have some sort of interference figure. Yeah? The same happens. You don't need to have two apertures, in truth. You can have one aperture alone, and this different figure will form based on the same principles. And effectively, this is what we're doing here, if you think about it, having an object hit by some sort of wavefront is the same as having an, 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 an aperture or an anti-aperture in some sort of screen. The important thing is this changing speed. So this works, and if you want to use this approach, the generation of interference to create an image, you can do it, but the problem is you need a very special source, something like this. This is a synchrotron, it's a particle accelerator which you don't use to smash particles against each other, but you use it to generate what was initially considered the parasitic effect, which is the generation of electromagnetic radiation because you're accelerating particles in a curved trajectory. Now, this is the very big one in Oxfordshire called Diamond that you might have seen before. But actually, when I started, as Jem briefly alluded to in, in his introduction, I was doing the same thing here. This is another machine similar to that, which is in Northeast Italy. The X-rays generated by such a machine are special in many ways. They're a bit like a laser when you compare it to the light produced by a light bulb. And in particular, the part that interests us for this application is you want what we technically call spatial coherence, which in simple terms means you want a very small source of radiation a long distance away. And a synchrotron would give you that. If you have it and you take uh, some object which is transparent to conventional X-rays, like a small flower or an insect, and you use this interference phenomenon, you can go from this sort of image quality to this sort of image quality, completely transforming the visibility of very fine details. So we did that here. 
about 20 years ago, maybe 23 or 24 actually, and this new image quality got the radiologists very, very excited. And of course, the obvious thing to do was to use it for medical imaging. And we said, okay, fantastic, let's do examinations on human patients at the synchrotron, which we did by building a machine that looks like this. This was applied initially to mammography because for a number of reasons. Uh, one is the sort of energy that the synchrotron produced was a good match with the requirements of mammographic examination. The other was that is an area where there's a need for increased sensitivity, specificity to find smaller tumors earlier on. And also an opportunity that this new technology gives you is to reduce the dose. And the breast is a radiosensitive organ, so dose reduction is quite important. Problem is, you go to a synchrotron and you don't have a field of radiation, of x-rays, which is of the dimensions that you need. Because there's something that is inherent to uh, whenever you accelerate a particle to uh, relativistic velocities, the, the light that it generates is inherently collimated vertically. So what happens is that you go to this beautiful synchrotron, you get your beam of light coming out of it, and it's going to be vertically very, very narrow. It can be brought horizontally, and you can tune that pretty much as much as you like, but vertically your radiation is bound to be narrow. So you're going to have a blade of radiation instead of a field. And the way you produce an image in those conditions is by scanning stuff through this blade, which is very easy if you want to scan this. You put it on a stage, and you, and you just shift it through your beam of radiation, and you get your image. But of course, if you want to do it in vivo, then you have to scan, in the case of mammography, the entire woman through your beam, which is why we designed this bed, which has a, a, a hole in the middle, the woman's laying prone. There's a very mild compression stage. That's another advantage that you don't need all the compression that you need in conventional mammography, which can be painful, I understand. And then the entire bed is scanned through the beam, the detector's down there, and you can create a phase contrast image of the human breast. And I have just one example from that experience to share with you. There's the hospital, there's the synchrotron image quality on screen. Can we change the lighting maybe a little bit so that we can, technician disappeared. Uh, don't know how to do it myself. I hope, I hope you can still see. I'm zooming in on this part in the middle here, which is a cyst. So it's a benign formation. I didn't want to show you anything too nasty. And hopefully you can see the delineation of this thing is much clearer here. But also if you look more carefully, you start to see things like these small calcifications up here, little cluster here, more calcifications there, very many details. And, and also the tissue itself is much better resolved here than there. So this works very well. We have been doing about 100 patients and the results are excellent. But that's when I thought, okay, this is bringing the patients into the synchrotron, which is a very limited way of approaching the problem because you will only be able to do however many patients and you'll never have a synchrotron in every hospital. Which is when I realized that I wanted to do the opposite. I wanted to take the technology out of the synchrotron and into a system that could be installed in a hospital, in industry, wherever you need it. What's the problem? Okay, I told you briefly that uh, we go to the synchrotron because it gives you this spatial coherence. It gives you this very small focal spot, very small source, very far away from where you put your 
object that you want to image. And indeed, that is exactly the problem. If you try to do the same thing with a conventional source, your focal spot becomes bigger and bigger. And as that happens, the sort of signal that you're trying to see disappears. Yeah? Technically, you're washing out the interference fringes, but don't worry too much about that. The point is, you can't produce an interference pattern with an extended source. At which point we said, okay, let's do something different. Let's use another phenomenon that is a consequence of the same thing. So this is your wave from distortion that I showed you before. Here it is again. What happens is if you now focus on the direction of the X-rays, they are orthogonal to the wavefront, right? So what that means, it means they go straight here, down in this direction, straight here and here. But where the wavefront is most distorted, typically at the edges of the detail, then you're going to have a deviation in the photon direction. And there you go. This is highly, so you know what this is. This is refraction. And everybody in the audience, I'm sure, is familiar with refraction because you've seen this. You've seen the pencil bend in a glass of water. Well, not the pencil, a straw maybe, bend in a glass of water. And some of you might remember from school something more sophisticated like this. It's always the same thing. So refraction happens for X-rays just as it happens for visible light. But the problem is that the angle involved is much smaller. The wavelength of X-rays, the, the length of the oscillation, is about 10,000 times smaller than the oscillation in visible light. And therefore, the refraction angles also become roughly 10,000 times smaller. The result is an angle which is called a microradian. And a microradian is, is the angle subtended by a millimeter, something like this, if you place it a kilometer away. So it's a very small angle indeed. So you have to create some sort of mechanism that enables you to pick up angular deviations of, on the order of the microradian, and then you're in business, and you can do phase contrast imaging. So just to use an old piece of kit that we had to demonstrate these things to the students, Traditionally, let me make this white, you're trying to shine the equivalent of light through, this is terrible and it will never work, so I apologize in advance, maybe I'll do it here. You're shining light through different darkenings and you're trying to distinguish the brightness of this spot from the brightness of this spot, which can be quite difficult, yeah? So if you've got a lot of attenuation, then yes, you can do it and the spot becomes very, very dim. But if you don't have a lot of attenuation, then this spot looks very similar to this. What we are doing, on the other hand, is shining the same light through interfaces between objects. And then what happens if you have a massive deviation of the spot? Yeah? So that's the refraction that I talked about. Invisible light, where the angle is many degrees, and it's very easy to see. But the same ratio between intensity of the effect applies to x-rays. Only the angle is small. So how do we pick up these very small angular deviations? One way, there's many ways, but the one we use is to shape our beam uh, in a very defined dimensions. So this blue thing here is the beam and hit the edge of some sort of sensing mechanism, which is what we would call a radiation detector or an X-ray detector. Yeah, we shape the beam, hit the edge. Then if I have an object in the beam that deflects my beam, for example, upwards, then all of a sudden, my x-rays that were to some extent counted by the detector will miss it. 
and I'm going to lose my count. And if the object is placed in the opposite direction, so that the deviation is downwards instead of upwards, then more x-rays will hit the detector and they will increase my number of counts. So with this very simple trick, I am converting an angular deviation into a change in the number of counts in a detector, a change in intensity. And intensity is the only thing your detector understands. So to do this in an imaging situation where you want to image extended objects, you need something like this. So this is how we do it in the lab. You've got your source and we have masks. We place a mask before the sample that we want to image and then we place another mask on a detector which is now an area detector. So I can take an image of a full object in one go. So what happens is that the pre-sample mask splits the beam into a plurality of what we call beamlets. And then every beamlet hits an edge on the mask which is placed on the detector. Basically, what I showed you before here now happens for every single row of pixels, we call them, in this two-dimensional imaging detector. And when I have my object, for example, this beamlet hits one edge of the object, is deflected upwards because of refraction, and this pixel will instantly count more photons. And the opposite occurs on the other side, this beamlet is deviated downwards. Instead of half of it hitting the pixel, it will completely hit the solid part of the mask, be absorbed, not be counted of the detector, and then I'm going to have a signal that looks like this an increase in the number of counts on one side and a decrease in the number of counts on the other side. I don't need attenuation. All the x-rays can go through the sample that I'm trying to image, but I still have a significant change in the number of counts in the pixels I'm interested in, which means I can see the object, even if it doesn't absorb at all. Now, I have one technical slide for which I apologize, but it's the only technical thing I'm going to tell you. Feel free to ignore it if you're not interested. I told you the problem with the conventional approach where you look at interference is that your signal disappears if you increase the dimension of your source. This doesn't happen for us. And here is a simulation before we built any system where the broken line represents the idealized case where the source is a point. It doesn't exist in nature. But imagine it does. Everything comes from a single point in space. So that's the ideal case you can't beat. While the solid lines is a real source, 100 microns, which is something that, for example, you use in the hospitals in diagnostic mammography. And pretty much you get the same signal. And I'll try to explain you why this is in as simple terms as I can. So this guy is now 100 microns. Yeah, so it's quite, it's not huge, but it's significant in dimensions as far as focal spots of X-ray sources go. The problem is that if this guy becomes bigger and bigger, it introduces a blur here at the detector. So these beamlets will not be sharp and have a square profile. They, they'll be rounded off. They get rounded off to the proportion of the real dimension of this guy times this distance divided by that distance. 
But we design the system, so we decide what the ratio between these distances are. For example, very typically for us, this distance is four times as long as this one. So the blurring I get here is a quarter of the real focal spot. If that's 100 microns, the blurring is 25 microns. So my beamlets are blurred by 25 microns. What are the pixel sizes that we use? Well, the smallest you have in medical imaging is about 50 microns. More often 100 microns, and for some application, more than that. A micron is a thousandth of a millimeter, by the way. So, if this becomes broadened by 25 microns, so long as my pixel is bigger than that, I still keep my beamlet separated, and I don't care. It still works. The difference is that instead of having a profile which is squared, they get a bit rounded off, but remember, they move up and down in the drawing, and the signal comes because I chop them in half with a solid edge. So if, if they're perfectly flat and square, or a bit rounded off, and I chop them in half and they move, I get the same signal. Yeah? By, by which I hope I have sort of explained to you why these two signals are so similar in our case. Okay. Once you convince yourself that that is the case, then, then you can invest some money in trying to build some sort of prototype. So that's a design with a source, a mask, a sample, another mask, a detector. And this is the real thing that we have in the lab, or one of the systems that we have in the lab. And it's the same. The source, one mask, the sample, the other mask, the detector. Now we've got three or four of these things going at all times. You have the system, you've built it, you can test it, and here's the beetle that you've seen before, right? So the interesting thing here is that you zoom in to this beetle, and you see stuff that you would never expect to see with conventional x-rays. For example, I hope you can see from there the hairs on the leg. So these are very minute. They're made of carbon, mostly. They're very low absorption. There's no way you can see anything like that using x-ray attenuation because they don't stop x-rays. They're not absorbing almost any of your x-rays. You do see them because of these refraction effects, which are a manifestation of a phase change, the different speed. So people were used to see these things as synchrotrons, diamond and electra and the big machines I showed you before. By the way, those machines, if you've never seen one, they're roughly as big as a football stadium, and they cost about 150 millions to build while the machine I just showed you is about a meter and a half, and it costs three to 400,000 pounds to build. How much? Three to 400,000. Uh, this is our prototype. If they become manufactured uh, on, on, on a much bigger scale, then the cost would go down accordingly. So applications. We started from mammography. I'll go back to mammography. And this is uh, a specimen. It's not in vivo yet, where there is a big tumor in, in tissue. And one thing that doctors want to see is microcalcifications that are a typical indicator of the early stages of formation of a tumor. And by and large, the rule is that if there, there's a few of them and they are round and regular in shape, you're looking at something which is benign. While if they're clustered, there's many of them in a cluster and they're very regular in their edges, then the formation is most likely to be malignant. So this is the hospital image of the specimen, and it could go either way. But when we run it through our system, then you see all of a sudden that actually 
is not only these one, two, three, four, five big calcium deposits that you have, but there's much more going on. There's a constellation of very small clustered and indeed irregular calcifications there, which are indeed the signs of, of a malignant tumor. Another example still in mammography is the detection of thin tumor strands. Uh, very often uh, you've got these sort of thin strands along which the tumor uh, can propagate, walk, and reach other parts of the body. And these are very difficult to see in the conventional image, but I think you can see them quite well in our face contrast image. And indeed, this is, is inspired one of the main projects that we're running at the moment, which I hope I'll have time to tell you more about uh, later. Another thing we can see is cartilage. Cartilage is invisible to conventional x-rays, and people use MRI instead, which is great. MRI is a fantastic technology but it's expensive, uh, it takes a long time to do a scan, not all hospitals have it, so the idea that we have is, in the long term, is to deliver a sort of soft tissue sensitivity of MRI with the cost, speed, and high spatial resolution of, of X-rays. So this is part A, and now I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a couple more things which are a bit more technical, and then I'll show you how these additional findings enabled us to develop new applications. So what I told you so far is effectively a half-truth, because we made our system sensitive to phase effects, refraction, but making a system sensitive to phase doesn't mean it becomes insensitive to attenuation. And indeed, this image is a mixture of the conventional absorption, attenuation, I'm using them interchangeably, there's a faint difference, but I'll, I'll skip that, and phase. For some applications, and indeed the Trieste trial that I mentioned before was based on these premises, it works. You have a conventional image, which looks a lot like the conventional image the doctor is used to, and on top of that you have more visibility. Fine. So for some applications, you can have a mixed image, phase and attenuation together, and live with it. Absolutely fine. But if you want to, you can do something a bit more sophisticated and separate out attenuation from phase. How do we do that? Again, there's a number of ways, and I'll just show you one. You could take two separate images of your specimen while displacing your pre-sample mask in such a way that image number one, you hit the top part of the septa in the detector mask. Image number two, you shift it downwards just a little bit, and then you take an MR image, and you hit the other side. By doing this, you're switching your phase signal, refraction signal, because here, if you deviate upwards, you count more, and if you deviate downwards, you count less. And here, if you, the opposite occurs. If you devi deviate upwards, you count more. You deviate downwards, sorry, you deviate upwards, you count less. Deviate downwards, you count more. So these are the profiles, red and blue, to show you that the image switches uh, orientation. Of course, attenuation doesn't care about that, so it stays the same. So apart from a number of physical constants that you need to get the physics right, long story short is you sum them, and you cancel out phase, and you, you're, you're stuck with attenuation, and you subtract them, you get rid of attenuation, and you have phase. So you can effectively separate the two effects. And these are examples where we've compared the results to the theoretical prediction just to show that we were doing the right thing. This is one we're particularly proud of, is one of those plots that I showed you before, but 
This one is taken at the synchrotron. This one is taken in the lab. Just to show that if you do everything right and you're very, very careful, you can get the same results. Now you have two images. Uh, you have the phase image and you have the attenuation image. The phase image for us is a map of the refraction angles caused by every part of the specimen you're investigating. Once you have that, you can try to understand what's the minimum refraction angle that you can detect. And in the lab, constrained to a dose which is about a mammographic dose, we measure about 250 nanoradians. So that's a quarter of the microradian that I told you about before. So take your millimeter, split it in four, take a fourth of a millimeter, put it a kilometer away, that's the angle we resolve in the lab here at UCL. If you go to a synchrotron, you can do much better than that. But then you have to spend a few hundred millions. So this is uh, now two-thirds of a story. There's one more thing that I'll mention, which was developed by Marco sitting somewhere over there, which is there's a, a third effect that, can, that, that happens at the same time or can happen at the same time and can also be separated. I told you that our beamlets get attenuated and that is equivalent to conventional X-rays. I told you that they get refracted, so they change direction and that is phase. They also broaden. I start with the beamlet which has certain dimensions. I run it through an object. When it comes out and I measure it again, it's broader. What does that mean? Well, it's easier to explain first uh, when it does not broaden. If it goes through some material which is perfectly homogeneous, it comes out the same apart from attenuation and possibly deflection if there's an interface. It comes out the same width as it went in. But if your specimen is very inhomogeneous on a microscopic scale, and I mean smaller than the pixel. Remember, I told you our pixels are 50 microns, 100 microns, maybe 200 microns. So if there's stuff going on on a scale which is like a micron or less, then I won't be able to see that because my pixel is too big. However, what happens is that, imagine that then my, my matter, be it tissue or be it whatever, is made by multiple speckles of matter stuck together, like here. Every one of these guys will refract at the edges, but I won't be able to resolve it because my pixel is too big. But what happens is that every one of these guys will send x-rays in all possible direction, and the global effect of that is a broadening. So I can measure the amount of broadening and relate it back to how much is going on in my tissue on a microscopic scale. It's a global measurement. It's not a specific resolved measurement, but it carries a lot of information. Hopefully better understood with an example. Microbubbles. People use microbubbles as a contrast agent in ultrasound. They don't use it for x-rays. If you had a pixel which is infinitely small, one micron or less, you would get an image of the microbubbles that looks like this. But you don't. Your pixel is big. It's as big as this. So you're going to capture a lot of them all together in one element of your image, and they'll all get confused together and they'll disappear. And indeed, if you have a vial with bubbles and a vial without bubbles and you take a conventional image, they look exactly the same. These bubbles are very small. They're not enough to create a change in attenuation. But if you take this, what we call a dark field image, we measure the broadening, then 
the vial with bubbles shines up. Because every one of these little guys will refract the x-rays at the edges, and if I measure the broadening of the beam, then I will see something different compared to the beam that went into the specimen. So the pixel here is not how many x-rays I have detected, it's how broad is the beam after it went through the specimen. So I, can, I, I know that the bubbles are there, and by measuring this brightness, I can also tell you how many bubbles per unit volume are there, even though I'm not able to see them one by one. And this is very useful in a number of applications. But before I show you applications, let me uh, try to convince you that the signal that I get from this additional channel is complementary. Now, this is bamboo wood, which is a beautiful natural composite. Yeah? If you take a toothpick and you take a micro CT, a microtomography, inside you'll see something like this. So here you have your attenuation phase and this new channel I told you about, this dark field. And if you combine them all together on a color scale, red for absorption, conventional, blue for refraction, phase changes, and green for dark field, which we also call ultra-small angle scattering, just to confuse things a bit more, but that's just internally. Then you'll notice that the different colors come out of different parts of the sample. For example, green, red is where you have bulky stuff that stops X-rays. Blue comes at interfaces, where you have a transition between one material type, one density, and another. And green is in other areas where there's nothing too evident going on, but what it tells you is that there is structure there. That that piece of matter on a microscopic scale is not uniform, is texture in some shape or form. So you know that there is stuff going on on a scale that you cannot resolve. And for example, if you take an image of an impact in a composite material, composite material is uh, a modern type of material which is made by overlapping uh, carbon fibers, clots of carbon fiber, for example, in different orientations in a resin, and, and this is oversimplifying, of course, it's more sophisticated than that. And it's very important because, for example, 50% of a modern aeroplane is made of composite materials. So it's a very important material, very difficult to test, especially after impact damage. So you take a panel of this uh, uh, carbon reinforced plastic and you hit it with a bullet. Say it's a nose cone of a train and it's hit by a small rock. How do you know whether that impact has created damage or not? You take a conventional image and it's very difficult to see. You take a phase contrast image and, it, and things get a bit better. You start to see what's going on there because you're creating interfaces. But with this dark field stuff, you really see the extent of the damage, how big it is and where it goes. Because what happens is that the, the impact has created very many micro cracks in the material on a microscopic scale, which are very difficult to resolve because they're very, very small. But a uniform matrix has become non-uniform because of the many cracks. And this shines up in your dark field image. Yes, five minutes, so I'll have to cut it short. Uh, the other thing this is very good at is finding explosives, because they seem to have a microstructure that is different from that of non-thread materials. So this is a simulation of a bug with an explosive attenuation phase and dark field. The beauty is you have multiple type of images which you can combine together. So you can attack the problem from different directions. You put everything in a plot, and not only do you have the attenuation of different materials, which is the same in many cases, but you have this other channel that separates out things much better. 
Here we've got marzipan and one of the explosives, which I'm afraid I can't tell you what it is, and they sort of overlap. So they still are indistinguishable, but what I can do is I can play another trick and resolve, for example, the energy of the X-rays, so I have an additional dimension to my plot, and then I can separate out also marzipan from the nasty guys. And finally, very quickly, five minutes to tell you that what I showed you so far was planar images in 2D, but the same applies to 3D imaging or computed tomography, if you want. And this is one of the early images uh, where we show that we really resolve, this is an esophagus, we show that we really resolve the different soft tissues, one from the other. So that's stuff that could never be done with x-rays and people use MRI, but we do separate perfectly the different types of tissues that are inside an organ in the human body. And we can distinguish them one from the other. This is the gold standard done at the synchrotron and we've repeated the experiment in the lab. I would probably argue the image quality is not exactly the same, but we still recognize all the tissues that we need to recognize. We also have lots of resolution if we want to because the apertures we can use the apertures in the mask, play with them to increase the resolution. This is coffee powder, a CT of coffee powder. Why do we do that? Well, to test the resolution. We saw this structure and we wondered whether it was an artifact. So we took one single grain of coffee. This is not the bean. This is after you've ground it, so uh, half a millimeter. Stuck it in an electron microscope and saw that this stuff is real. So we really do resolve it. So that's quite important because you can make applications where you see the striations in, 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 in the muscles of the heart, but also we can try to do digital histology. We can try to uh, look at biopsies using x-rays instead of slicing them, embedding them, and looking at them through a microscope, which might be, give us the possibility one day to image them in real time when they're taken out of the patient and be able to tell right away whether there's a problem or not. So one angle on it is Resolution, the other angle on it is speed. So what I could do, and that's the last thing I'm gonna show you, is I say, okay, say, forget about the very high res. What I want to do is go as fast as I can, do a CT in minutes. This opens up new possibilities. So we've focused on that for quite a while, and this really is the last thing I'm gonna show you. And we managed to create an image in about three minutes, which is a record for phase contrast with the laboratory system. So this heart is not as good as this one, which is the high-res one, which takes hours, but has the advantage of being done in three minutes. If I can do imaging in 3D in a few minutes, then I open a new application area, which is intraoperative imaging. And we have a big welcome project underway on this, which a few people in this room are involved. We've compacted the system because we want to really create something that can be deployed in a hospital, and we started to create images that look like this one. So I'll just tell you what this problem is about and then I'll stop and take a few questions if there's any. Intraoperative imaging, for example, in breast operations, there are other applications. Let's focus on breast for, for a couple of minutes. Luckily, these days, breast operations are not mastectomies anymore in a vast majority of the cases. The surgeon will take out a lump, they call it a lumpectomy in jargon, which is the tumor itself. So that most of the tissue is left behind and it's much easier to restore the original shape and there's a number of benefits. But the problem you have at that point is you need to know whether you've removed the entire tumor. In other words, you have to make sure that the margins or whatever you've taken out are clear. And the way you do this at the moment is you send this to the pathology lab, 
and you get an answer in two to three weeks. Now, if you do find something, that's terrible because you have to call the woman back and tell them that they need to have a second operation. So this is a massive impact on the population, of course, because of the anxiety it produces. And also it has costs for the NHS because of the number of reoperations. So the idea here is if we can scan that specimen in real time and be able to tell whether the margins are clear or not, then we will reduce significantly the number of reoperations. So this is what they do at the moment, and this is our image where this is the tumor, and this is, for example, an involved margin. And all of this was confirmed by the histology that we've taken after. So what we're trying to do here is almost to replace histology and being able to do it in real time in the operating theater while the patient is still asleep on the operating table so that we can intervene and solve the problem and not have to have reoperations. I think I've run out of time, haven't I? So, yeah? Okay, so I think this gives you a good cross-section. By the way, this is the machine that will do all this in breast operations that we should deploy in a hospital uh, before the end of November, similar applications in the esophagus, and this is the same example as before, but in 3D. So I'll skip the conclusions which are boring, and what I really want to do is thank the group, the funders, and most of all, you all for putting up with me for 40 minutes or so. Thank you very much for listening. Okay, we've got a time for a few questions. Only questions from the audience. Hi, Sandra. Thank you for the really nice talk. Uh, what is the resolution that you can get on the dark field? My point is, what is do you have idea how fine can be the particles so you can be able to distinguish? I'm saying you don't need to see the particles, but just see that you get the, a different signal there. Yes, so that is a function of the, it's a bit of a technical question, it's a function of the resolution of my imaging system. So say the resolution is 50 microns, yeah? So long as the details have 50 microns, they appear in the normal channels, attenuation or phase. When they become smaller than that, they switch and they get transferred into this channel. So do you want to know how much smaller yes. than the resolution they have to be for me to be able to see it? Yes. Well. Uh, is a bit of an ill-posed question because a lot depends on the strength of the signal they generate. And the strength of the signal depends on the phase change. So basically, if, if it's an abrupt phase change, massive difference, then I can go much smaller. And if it isn't, then I'll stop earlier. So this is something that actually we're still investigating and we're not completely clear. We have seen easily one order of magnitude, we think at least two orders of magnitude below the resolution should create signal. But this, this is where we got, really. This is really very much work in progress still. Okay. There's a question here. Thank you very much. Um, when will we see one of these machines of yours in each of the hospitals around the UK? Okay. So, as I said, this one... was supposed to be installed at Barts uh, before the end of October. And then we hit a phenomenal power, which is very forceful, which is NHS bureaucracy. <laughs> which doesn't mean it will not happen. It means it will take longer. So we've extended the project till the 31st of 
uh, January next year, but the plan we have is to finish it before Christmas. So we have a new agreement, and the first machine should be deployed before the end of November. This is not to do a clinical trial yet. Uh, it's really to introduce it in the clinical workflow and show that it can work within the clinical work workflow without disrupting it. So the surgeon will not be able to make a judgment based on the images. That's because we had to, you know, do a statistical trial in the lab, build a machine and everything. So that's where the current project finishes. If everything is successful, then the next step would be the clinical trial, where you really use it to decide what to do, whether you want to excise more tissue or not, and maybe compare it against existing technology and see whether after two or three years this leads to a reduction in the number of reoperations. Of course, there's other uses which are non-medical, and they might happen even faster because the regulations problems are so much simpler. The composite materials, for example. Time for maybe one more question. Microphone's on its way. How do you isolate the, um, what do you want to see, let's say, in, in a breast, when there is so much uh, <clears throat> sort of granularity across? Um, how do you able to, and so basically the, the, the ray will, the beam will get diffracted a lot of times. Yes, uh, it's the same, pro so what you're really talking about is the problem of overlapping structures, which is the main driver behind the introduction of CT compared to planar images in the 70s. So what happens is that yes, all the structures will refract, they will all show up in your image, and they will overlap, just like they do in a conventional attenuation image. Structures fall on top of each other, and if there are too many of them, then it's difficult to understand what's going on. So from that point of view, it's no different from conventional imaging. Yes, you do get refracted multiple times, but the image is the superposition of all the overlaps. And when we do CT, then we can completely disentangle the two effects, because we can cast this signal as a line integral, if you allow me a technical term, and then invert it to create the volume. But in planar, you'll always have the overlap. You can't, you can't do it out. There's an intermediate step, which I haven't shown today. It's called tomosynthesis, which is effectively limited view tomography. So instead of doing a full rotation, you take images from a number of angles, and that enables you some degree of disentanglement. For example, you could peel away layers of your specimen and look at the layers one by one without having a full 3D volume. I hope I've answered. Okay, well, let me, let's thank our speaker one more time for a, an excellent talk. Thank you very much, Sandra.